Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. Just a quick message before the episode begins. If you volunteer to participate in our Coffee Invention Taste Test and Focus Group project, please be sure to get your completed evaluation forms to the Iron Radio intern, Kayla, as soon as possible. I've asked Kayla to pass along the list of anyone who takes a picture of their evaluation sheet and sends it to her so I can offer a little reward and thank you for your effort. We've been fortunate that this invention has actually won a few awards, but we need your feedback in order to move forward with the patent and a preliminary release of the product through gyms and coffee shops. Thanks. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild, a powerlifter, powerlifting coach. I'm on the way to a meet right now. Sweet. Nice. I was Dr. Mike T. Nelson, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and whole bunch of other stuff. I'm down here in Austin, Texas, presenting at Paleo Effects. Presented yesterday, a couple podcasts and two panels today, and one more day tomorrow. Busy man. Yeah. All right, everyone. We have Arthur Lynch with us. Arthur, can you um, distill yourself in a sentence or two? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, my name is Arthur Lynch. I'm Irish. I'm based in, uh, in Limerick in Ireland. Um, I'm a current competitive powerlifter um, in the, the the Irish branch of the the IPF. Um, I'm actually vice president of the the federation here. Um, I'm a former competitive bodybuilder myself, um, and I am a graduate student as well. So I'm studying for my my PhD here in the University of Limerick. Excellent. All right, everyone, so we're going to get to the usual uh, mail and news first. Um, really news, actually, today. I have two little tidbits, and I don't want to waste too much time because I want to get to Arthur's origin story um, because he seems to really fit the Iron Radio uh, mold in so many ways. But Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is something that was news to me, and I just read this uh, a couple of days ago. The FDA to modernize dietary supplement regulations. And actually, Arthur, it'd be interesting to hear some of the differences out of Ireland with this, right? My perception is that the U.S. is almost the Wild West in our liberal approach to allowing so many different kinds of dietary supplements. But um, that might change uh, for the better or worse, depending on your opinion. So it says here, for the first time in 25 years, according to FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, uh, there's going to be some modifications in the way they enforce DSHA, the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act, which was uh, created all the way back in 94. Um, it says, to continue to fulfill our public health obligations, we need to modernize and strengthen our overall approach to these products. Above all else, the FDA's duty is to protect consumers from harmful products. So if you like the liberal 
uh, availability of supplements in this country. This might be a concern to you. Um, it says... One of the things they, they like to do is to ensure that dietary supplements contain the ingredients that they're labeled to contain. Uh, so again, the first priority is protecting consumers from harm. Second is to ensure label compliance uh, with what they claim to contain and nothing else. And it says a third priority is informed decision-making, whereby they want com- consumers and healthcare professionals to be able to make informed decisions on recommending, purchasing, and using dietary supplements. So one of the ways they want to do this as far as an operations change would be leveraging existing authorities to evaluate new products and ingredients as they are introduced and to develop new enforcement strategies. So I think you could tell by some of this language that this looks like a hammer is coming down potentially. Yeah. Um in the coming months, the FDA plans to provide additional details. So there it is. This is, by the way, from Food Technology Magazine, IFT.org. Um, wow, right? Because we've already had discussions on the show before about how it's not the complete Wild West that it used to be, like was portrayed in movies like Bigger, Stronger, Faster. You know, people are just capsulating stuff in their kitchen and laughing about how crude it is yeah. or um, it's really not like that even now, but this makes it look like, I don't know, I, I suppose an uncharitable ad- observer might say this is a power or money grab, right? Because if you have to go through some very expensive paperwork process submitting any new you know, innovation when it comes to dietary supplements, um, you know, the FDA then has the power, more power than maybe now to decide what comes to market and what doesn't or you know from a financial side they're going to make tens of thousands of dollars as you have to keep introducing you know applications for new uh, ingredients or formulations um now that's speculation on my behalf right so um i don't know yeah. does make you wonder though i know they've been kind of pushing for more and more regulations especially for new ingredients and even in the past several years um yeah, it's been also very vague as to what exactly that means and what they're going to do also. Yeah, uh, there's been quite a few uh, difference, differences sort of coming down the pike here from this Scott Gottlieb, uh, the commissioner. So, uh, Arthur, what about you? I mean, what is the status with dietary supplements in Ireland? Is it Can you get most of what you want? Do you feel like it's there's a lot of restrictions? Um, I'd say... Well, like most things, Ireland is a little bit behind the U.S. So, I mean, if these regulations or this this move towards tightening up the the um, the level of control around them is occurring now in the U.S., it's probably going to be a little bit further down the line before we see that here. Um, I'd say probably, uh, I'd say probably, yeah, we can kind of get, you know, whatever you want on the market. I'm not that well versed in it myself, but. Um, from my own perspective, one thing that, that is a, an area of concern for me and uh, with people I work with is, so I would have a lot of clients and obviously myself competing in drug-tested powerlifting. Uh, so it's it's very important that, you know, that they're not taking something that they could possibly fail a test for. And I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical sometimes of people who say, oh, I, I failed because of X dietary supplement. It's like, well, is that a cover-up or is that, you know, is that something you were using to mask the stuff that you were actually taking? Um, 
you know, but there is actually some research to suggest that a lot of supplements don't necessarily uh, only contain what they have listed in their ingredients. Right. And that's that's an area of concern, you know. Right. Um, I think in terms of what we're doing here, there was a documentary that was released a couple of months ago, a fairly damning documentary on a, it was called Steroid Ireland. And you can, you can probably imagine what, what that, um, what the content of that was like, a very, um, a very biased and a very damning, um, assessment of, uh, anabolic steroid usage in Ireland. But one of the things it did highlight was that, um, there was a particular supplement company based within Ireland that, were, you know, for people in the know, it was nothing. It was no big revelation for us, but they um, they were well known for kind of in inverted commas hi- hiding the good stuff behind the behind the counter. You know, <laughs> this this uh, this documentary did a lot to to bring that into the public eye. So I suppose with that, there might be almost um, with that level of fear mongering that comes with that, there might be a push towards regulating that whole industry a lot more here i'm not really sure but that would be my guess anyway right my perception has always been that the eu is just much less tolerant you know of a lot of the dietary supplement kinds of things the the, the irony to me is it seems like anabolic steroids seem less regulated I'm, i'm i'm painting with a really broad brush right across the entire you know continent of europe here uh Whereas supplements seem to get more restriction and focus and attention, um, even the Canadians have had uh, stricter laws than we have down here in the U.S. when it comes to dietary supplements. So, um, but again, th- but that's that's just my bias. And to your point about how much of this is <laughs> the good stuff behind the counter secretly versus openly sold, you know, and yeah. things like <laughs> things like that. Uh, here, of course, we have a. Um, if listeners aren't familiar, we have collegiate series of a, from a couple of different uh, dietary supplement companies, the bigger ones. And that's partly the point is that they don't contain anything that's going to make you test positive. You know, if you buy a protein powder or a weight gainer, it's not going to have <laughs> a little extra clenbuterol or something in there. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, of course, a lot of uh, collegiate teams are very paranoid about that kind of stuff. They have to meet certain protein limits and all kinds of things, you know. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely an issue. But there's that fine line, isn't it? It's like so many other things between regulation and and, and actually protecting the public from harm, you know, because that's always going to be the argument, right? From professional groups, um, whether it's exercise, fizz, or nutrition, or even the government here, is we want to protect the public. But what's what's the other? potential ramifications of this i don't want to say agenda you know but what are the other ramifications and one would be less innovation slower release to the market um you know more power in the hands of of the fda you know and and so it's just a two-sided coin really but maybe even just on that as well another potential ramification that i'm just thinking off the top of my head is if particular companies have to meet a certain standard um, or their supplements have to uh, be of a certain quality or a certain standard um, that they have to pay a certain fee to some governing body and that that maybe that squeezes out a lot of companies that are you know maybe doing everything else right but just they can't um, they get squeezed out financially 
Yes. No, exactly. Um, The big companies are going to be favored with a lot of these regulations, right? Let's say, for example, it costs $10,000 to uh, submit a new ingredient or a new product formulation, or let's say it's $100,000 U.S. -hmm. dollars, then the, the big companies can do that. The smaller companies cannot. And so, you know, does that favor... Uh, monopolies and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a lot of things that that could come out of this. Phil, I know you're driving there, but do you have a, a natural lifters that are concerned with dietary supplements and that kind of stuff, or is it just not an issue with the way you guys roll? We want the good stuff behind the counter. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in general... Uh, well, some of my high school and collegiate people, yeah, of course. So, and anybody in USAW, I mean, USAW has come down hard now. So, I mean, they can test you anytime, anywhere. Um, so, is once you are, a, you don't even have to be high level. Um, just once you register with that USAW card, you are able to be tested. Not saying they're going to do it, but wow. So, yeah, we definitely, we definitely uh, have to keep an eye on it for sure. Yeah. Do you think your people will be? Um ticked off if there's more regulations or you think it's it's like listen we're going to get our creatine and protein regardless or fish oils and that's all we care about i can't see them a lot of the stuff we use is just pretty basic and like you said creatine and protein and i don't see much coming of that you know yeah my guess this is geared at things like kratom and things like that that have become quite popular as of late yeah well, yeah, Mike, you and I both, we have worked with dietary supplement companies and just rolled our yeah. eyes, right? Like so much of the dose, not just the ingredient, but the doses of them uh, in a bottle is based so much on price point of what they can sell the bottle for. It's not always the most efficacious dosage, you know, of different things. And yeah, so, yeah. I mean, you can't you can't have complete lack of regulation, you know, but, but then too much regulation, like I said, could you know, pinch out the little guy or limit innovation. It'll be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah. I would just love to see, instead of trying to pass more regulation and make it more confusing, just be like, Hey, you have to disclose everything that's on the label. No, you shouldn't be able to copy someone else's formula per se, which I know that gets messy and into patents and you know, what is open, what is not. And then at very minimum, how about actual enforcement of what you say is on the label is actually in the freaking bottle? Yeah. Because you know, I think that's what a lot of the questions come down to. And if you have consumers that <clears throat> don't trust even the label claims, it's like, oh, you're kind of screwed for starters. And we have enough legislation and regulation on that already. We just don't, you know, the FDA doesn't have the manpower or desire right now to enforce any of that, really. Yeah, that's that's definitely my bias as well. I would like to see um, resources if they're going to pump money into this. It's yeah. not it's not more aggressive ways to bust uh, little companies, but rather yeah. quick information turnaround so they can meet this. What is it? The second one, I think it was, which was so you know, health authorities and even consumers they can make more educated decisions. You know, sort of thing. But okay. Um, I have one last little thing here, just I want to fire off quickly. It, it's fairly brief, and then we'll get to Arthur's origin story. This is uh, from, I got it through labroots.com, but they often get it from even other sources. It's entitled, Have You Taken Your Daily Nature Pill? And this is interesting, too, because I heard somebody say this from, um, it was actually an Amazon 
executive mentioned that this was something that they build into some of their uh, like their national headquarters and stuff. They they keep this in mind. Here's a study to support what what this guy was going on about. Uh, it's basically about getting out in nature and what is it going to do for your stress and recovery and things like that. But it says the positive impacts of spending time in nature are well established, but just how much time and which type of exposure do you need right, to get certain stress reduction benefits? Uh, in a statement to Science Daily, Dr. Mary Carol Hunter, who was a lead author, she's an associate prof at uh, University of Michigan. She summarized that, quote, the study shows that for the greatest payoff in terms of efficiently lowering levels of stress, the stress hormone cortisol, you should spend 20 to 30 minutes sitting or walking in a place that provides you with a sense of nature. Hmm. Um, they did an eight-week study. They analyzed salivary cortisol and um, salivary amylase, uh, which is a carbohydrate, you know, first step of sort of carbohydrate digestion, if you will. Uh, but it's also... It fluctuates with stress. So anyway, it says elevated cortisol levels, of course, have myriad effects, including interference with learning and memory, lower immune function, increased blood pressure, and increased weight, and heart disease. It says uh, salivary amylase is produced by the digestive system and responds to physical and physiological stress. So throughout the study, they took saliva samples before and after four uh, different nature experiences. I think importantly, the subjects, the participants, they got to choose um, certain aspects of these experiences. And I think that would make sense, too, because what we might like, – Mike, like you may dig um, sitting at the beach and meditating, and somebody else may like a, a walk through a canopied forest, you know, sort, yeah, totally. sort of – right? So um, basically they did 20 to 30-minute nature experiences, and indeed cortisol levels were reduced by 21% per hour and uh, – Alpha amylase dropped by 28.1% per hour. Uh, it says these biomarkers continue to decline, although slower, even after the nature experience was done. Uh, hmm. So it's interesting that they – and then they talk, of course, about should healthcare providers literally try to prescribe this for stress reduction. Um, this is something that I actually do. When I'm under a lot of stress, I turn to music and nature. Those are the two things that – that have worked pretty well for me. I just think there's something built into human beings DNA uh, with this kind of stuff. But yeah, so 20 to 30 minutes, th that's just feels doable. You know, it's not like you have to go on some kind of um, five day nature retreat <laughs> to get your cortisol <laughs> levels down. Um, might, might be helpful for our population, right? As far as overtraining or people who are under a lot of risk, guys like Arthur who are, you know, school plus training and uh, all these other stressors. So just thought that yeah. was neat. I just find that getting outside, getting in nature, even if you want to meditate outside, walk. I like doing just an AM, you know, walk if you can get to a little bit more wooded area. Or the other game I play with clients is there's a thing called tree blindness, where after a while people spend so much time inside. They they see trees, but they can't, they don't consciously differentiate between them, which sounds really bizarre. And I'm like, yeah, just walk around, try to look up, see how many trees you can find, and just see if they're different. Like, you don't have to go to your, you know, Wikipedia and try to identify them. But it's just crazy just to get them up and looking around, not to stare at their phone or look at their feet the whole time when they're walking around. Right on. You know, it was actually disturbing. When I went out to San Diego for my master's program, I was so stunned and aware of these gorgeous palm trees, like right outside my apartment door, you know. And I, I'd put my hand on the trunk and look up and really soak them up. And then oh, yeah. I thought to myself, don't let them become background. 
But I'm telling you, after about six oh, or yeah. eight months, they became background, and I was I was aware of it, but I couldn't force my body not to desensitize to these gorgeous palm trees, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of take them for granted. It was hard. You had, like you said, you have to be conscious about the experience, kind of. So, Arthur, I mean, I've driven cross country. Uh, in Southern Ireland, at least, I mean, that beautiful green rolling hills, you know, oh, it's yeah. like, um, some kind of Tolkien novel or something <laughs> to me. Yeah. Uh, well, I remember going on a bus tour between, uh, Dublin and, and the, the, the cliffs of Moher. Um, oh, very nice. And yeah, it was just, yeah. a, it was just a pretty drive. And I just wondering, do you get many, is, is there a lot of chances to get out in nature for you? Are you, is it too urbanized or suburbanized where you are? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, no, not really. I mean, I mean, Ireland is small, you know, I mean, where I am, I'm, I'm two hours away from Dublin and I'm probably 45 minutes away from the Cliffs of Moher, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, and there's, there's obviously a lot of other cool spots in between. I mean, Ireland is a fairly sparsely populated country with, with a, a huge, um, like agriculture is massive here. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of, green greenery and um lots of really cool i suppose uh natural landscape here mm-hmm. um but yeah kind of to your point there but when you were uh, when you were on your master's program you are inclined to sort of take it for granted a little bit when it's when it's there and it's around you the entire time um i i really don't get enough of it um do you purposely try to get out in it to help you recover oh, yeah. and yeah, honestly, not as much as I should, yeah. um, and that's that's a combination of laziness and just maybe not making it a priority for myself because it's like one of those things. I suppose if I could give you an analogy with sleep, right? So like we all know that like sleep is super important, but um, we're always keen to be doing things, and we'll be more inclined to like sacrifice sleep, even though it's like in- integral for. Uh, restoration and recuperation and making sure that you're as productive and efficient as possible you know in the in the in the forthcoming days so it's kind of like that where you'll be like ah i don't probably need that i can i can skimp on that that um getting getting out more um because i've got stuff to do uh if that kind of makes sense yeah no it does i mean in a sense you know better that doesn't mean you're gonna Go do it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that kind of idea. Right. Uh, Phil, uh, you guys, there's a lot of sort of Midwestern countryside and stuff for you guys. Do do, do you try to train outside when you can, or are you always in your facility, or how do you? Oh, yeah, like, no, like this time of year, it's warmed up, so we got the doors all the way open. We get outside in the street as much as we can, and then, like every weekend, I purposely get outside and work on our farm. You know, and things yeah. like that. If it's cutting wood, it's whatever. Just get outside and get some sunlight and get in nature. And the, the benefit of that, too, is my, my son loves it. So well, he gets to go run around and be crazy. And, Excellent. So. Yeah. I just it's like the, everybody. this this study just sort of – it quantifies, right? It gives you something to point to about here's a, a fairly concrete benefit to – because some of the best workouts I've ever had were like on the rooftops or some of the gyms in San Diego or, you know, like, a, you know, Venice Beach type environments. You're lifting in the sun and, you know, the, the breeze and everything. It, it can be pretty freaking cool. Anyway. Yeah. I'm lucky because where we live at home and I'm actually at home, 
is I can open their garage doors and we live at the end of uh, this dead end. So it's just the neighbors around there who we've known for years and they're super cool. So I'll turn the stereo up or put the rower out in the middle of the road or carry stuff up and down the street and do all the weird stuff they, well, they no longer think is weird, but. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for your patience, Arthur. Let's turn the attention to you before um, before we go to break. Uh, let's talk about, well, you know, you're combining academics and powerlifting and uh, how did it all start for you? Yeah. Uh, do you want the the longer version or the, the shorter version? <laughs> well, we've got a good 10, 15 minutes to talk about it, so. Okay. Um, right. Well, I suppose... I started lifting weights basically kind of by accident. It was sort of through playing rugby back when I was in uh, high school or what what you guys would refer to as high school or what we would what we would call a secondary school over here. And uh, so we came to the end of um, the the season, and it was at that point um, we were going to be enrolled in a, a strength and conditioning program over the course of the summer so that we all just didn't, you know, buzz off and do nothing for the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and just just from that summer on, I was just completely hooked on, on lifting weights and uh, just the whole, the whole idea of, you know, you, you have this input, the lifting weights and the output being, you know, increases in how much you lifted or how your body looked. I, I was just fascinated by it. So it was a, at that point, I decided I wanted to study it. So I enrolled in uh, sport and exercise sciences here in, in the University of Limerick and uh, got my degree in that. And as I was going along doing that, I, I had uh, I packed in rugby and I'd taken up just, just being a guy who just lifted weights for a few years. And then I decided, you know, um, I wouldn't actually mind trying my hand at bodybuilding because as a, as a teenager, I was um, a little bit on the chubby side. Um, I used to I used to joke that these origin stories were were always either the the chubby guy who got lean or the really skinny guy who put on some muscle. Yeah, um, yeah. I, was, I was definitely the former. Um, so I was like, that would be really cool for someone who was chubby as a as a kid and kind of got teased a little bit about his size and stuff, and um, to sort of to just do that. So I did that for a couple of years, um, kind of burned myself out a little bit as. as so often the case with with um, the extremist lifestyle that is uh, bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went away from that then, and then again just went back to just being a guy who just lifted weights. Um, and then I decided, you know, screw it, I'm going to try uh, do a bit of powerlifting. And uh, yeah, and then didn't look back from there on. And um, so I've been powerlifting what five six years now. I've got into coaching out of um, the gym I work in here in Limerick, City Gym Limerick. Um, I offer online coaching services through through Sigma Nutrition. I know Mike is familiar with, with that company. He's been on the, the podcast yeah. with Danny before. Well, Danny, I said hi. He's the man. Yeah. Um, and uh, then on the academic side, so when I finished my degree, I really didn't feel... You know, because sport and exercise science is a very generalist degree, so you you get introduced to a lot of different areas, but you're obviously not specialist in them at all. And um, it, even at that stage, I had the 
the foresight to know that I wasn't really up to scratch in terms of my abilities as a, as a thinker and that like my, my knowledge base wasn't where I wanted it to be. So I made it my business to enroll in a, uh, a PhD program. I, I initially, so I applied for it the year I was graduating from my undergraduate degree and I missed out on it. So I went away and worked for a year and then I applied for it again and got it the second time. Um, and so here I am now. Uh, so that's that's basically it, yeah. <laughs> so what's the um, what's what's the academic specialty as far as like the what are the what are the profs researching or, or what's what's mm. your real focus as far as the specialty goes? Right. So it, it has it has changed, and you're probably going to laugh when you hear about how um, how different it is now to when I started out. So initially, we were we were supposed to look at a. Um, an augmentation of the adaptations to resistance exercise using a, a protein and a, a fish oil-based supplement. And about a year into the PhD, we, so, so as in myself and my supervisors, we kind of, um, we mutually came to the conclusion that there wasn't really anything there because um, the, 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 the evidence base for it was, was very thin. And then there was some research that was actually published subsequent to by enrolling in the program, um, that flat out refuted it. So we're like, right, it's not ethical for us to continue this route. So then, then I was looking down the route of HMB, and HMB is a a tricky one because it has a very tainted reputation, yeah, and, and rightly so because of some, um, well, I'm just going to say it's some fabricated work in that area. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was always that kind of hesitation on that part but some of the research that was there depending on what population you were looking at um was uh, was kind of promising but i just wasn't confident enough in it um but at the same time i was happy enough to pursue that if it meant that i could replicate a similar design to the infamous uh wilson papers yeah the, the infamous Jacob Wilson papers yeah. and find nothing because I think that would be a, a useful finding um, but uh, just between sort of some logistical uh, constraints and my supervisors weren't overly keen on on my my rationale for the design um, we eventually scrapped it um, then uh, simultaneously along with that I had been sort of flirting with some uh, muscle testing sort of research so I, I would use um, like isokinetic dynamometry uh, isometric dynamometry and then I was looking at uh, using an, an isometric squat test um, and I had completed a study a few years back on uh, the reliability of a, an isometric squat test so when the HMB thing sort of fell apart I just decided I was going to go full on into that so right now what I'm looking at is um I'm looking at the sensitivity of the measure. So like thinking more along the, the practical application of it, um, if you have this this test that can tell you, you know, your force output in a particular position in the squat, that's great. But if you do a training program and you come back and because of the error of the measurement or um, whatever it might be that you just don't see any change in it, well, then there's probably no real grounds for, for using it, you know, on a, on a purely... Um, on a pragmatic basis. So this current study that I'm looking at right now, um, we're testing subjects uh, 
pre-training on the isometric along with a one rep max squat giving them a six week training program and then we're going to retest them at the end of it they're they're not naive subjects but they'd be sort of in the recreationally trained um category so we were confident that there's that there's good scope that we would see improvements in the one rm so in the one rep max um and uh so given that we we want to know is what what's the change in the isometric um uh peak force and if we find that you know it's not sensitive well then we we probably wouldn't pursue this measure and we would probably recommend that people um just just keep using one rep max you know um we're we're not looking at it from the point of view of uh replacing a one rep max obviously that would be silly but there's certain things that you can get from the isometric test that you can't get from a one rep max and it's sort of less sensitive to the skill demand of the one rep max as well so it might be a nice complementary measure if that makes sense yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Um, I, I like to ask that question of guys like yourself, partly because, I mean, it, and it, it sounds to me like you've you're exploring everything from more, you know, um, measurement to nutrition, uh, kind of a, a broad base. And uh, again, so much of it depends on your advisor and whatnot. But uh, I like to ask that question because. I'd like to get a feel. Are you an oddball? Is your interest in strength and muscle mass? Um, <laughs> unusual, you know. Are you surrounded by essentially a bunch of people studying mitochondrial biogenesis and <laughs> endurance yeah. training, and you know, and all that kind of thing? L- Lonnie, I'm a, I'm an oddball in in every room I walk into. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But uh, like, p- particularly, yeah. Even so, I mean, when I'm in the gym, I'm an oddball because I'm I'm a guy who's involved in academics, and when I'm in the academic. Um, setting. I'm an oddball because I'm a guy who lifts weights for the sake of lifting weights. Right. <laughs> right. Know? I totally get um, it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, we are going to go to break, everyone, uh, and then we're going to explore uh, something that we haven't yet touched on with Arthur, which is uh, he's a podcaster. So, like we are. And we're just going to sort of touch base about some of the good, bad, and ugly in strength and fitness po- podcasting, maybe how it differs. Um, in Ireland versus the U.S., or is it so global it doesn't matter, you know, that sort of thing. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. 
Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everyone, we're back. It's Mike and Lonnie, and it's Arthur Lynch, and we are going to talk about strength and fitness podcasting, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, maybe regional differences uh, in powerlifting or bodybuilding, you know, that sort of thing. So my first question for you, Arthur, is let's just explore that good, bad, ugly concept. Uh, in your estimation, since you've been podcasting, and maybe you could even fill us in on how long you've been doing this and, and why, um, but, you know, what's good about podcasting? What drew you to it, and, you know, what what kind of benefit uh, does it provide to our community? Yeah. Um, well, I'll just answer that first question initially. Um, so compared to you guys, I'm, I'm still a relative newbie, so I've been podcasting for about two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, how it all started for me was, was actually by accident. So, um, it was, so what was it? 2017. Yeah. So we were coming up to, um, our Irish powerlifting, um, national championships and, uh, myself and a, a buddy of mine, we were really excited about the event. So we wanted to promote it a little bit more. So I, uh, was talking to Danny Lennon from from Sigma Nutrition at the uh, at the time, and he he actually had a sort of a side project uh, which was a powerlifting based podcast. And I said to him, you know, if if we did this preview of our national championships, would you be happy to host it um, on the the Sigma Powerlifting podcast? And he he kind of said that he thought it would be probably more appropriate if we did it as our own sort of once off thing. And that's sort of what we intended to do with it. And that's exactly what we did. But the thing was, it was that it, it got an, an extraordinary amount of positive feedback to the point that myself and my co-host, uh, we decided to, to keep it going. And we just said, we'll just, we'll just see if we can have a bit of fun with it. You know, there was no like, um, we had no real objective as such. It was just, let's just talk about things related to powerlifting, maybe get some guests on who can uh, give us some more information on various different topics and uh, just run with it, really. And here we are two years later. We're still uh, we're still at it. We have about 60 episodes now, so reasonably consistent with the uploads. Um, and we, we cover a lot of different areas, you know. So, I mean, 
the ins and outs of powerlifting, if you like, um, nutrition, psychology, um, and, you know, if there are areas where, you know, they're not my area of expertise, I'll, I'll have an expert on to talk about them, you know, I mean, that that's a big thing for me is, like, staying within my scope. Uh, so if I want to have a discussion around a particular topic, I'm going to get an expert in the field on it, you know. Um, and that's all it's really been for me. And I suppose in more recent times, how I've kind of looked at it is I sort of have the almost a selfish outlook of like, okay, well, if no one else is going to listen to this, I'd like to get uh, some worthwhile learning outcomes from it. So if I get someone on, I want to learn from them. And if someone else listens to it, great. Um, and, you know, as it, as it transpired, people do listen to it. And I, I get a lot of very positive feedback on it. So that's, that's fantastic. The other thing as well is that as I've got busier with my, with my PhD, I've been less able to do things like in-person coaching and like writing and stuff like that. So as you probably touched on when I had you on my podcast, Lonnie, is that, um, you can use the podcast to to reach a certain demographic of people in a very efficient manner. You're just you know you're just talking for an hour. You know besides the editing process and that kind of thing as well. But for the most part, the, the time involved isn't isn't anywhere near as much as you might spend coaching or um, writing, for example. And uh, you know so so you're able to influence more people in a more efficient way because you know if you have however many hundred or thousand people listening to you, um, that's more efficient than if you were to like reach out to those people on a individual level, if, if that makes sense, you know? Sure. Yeah. The, the impact of it. Um, now you said, well, I've actually heard, let me put it this way. And I mean this in the best possible way that there are more sheep than people in Ireland. Uh, so if you have a less population density, is it important to have something like a podcast to connect the far-flung members? I mean, or is powerlifting pretty popular there? And, and you know, and, and they'd get a sense of community anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of a bit of both because powerlifting has really exploded over here, as it has, I think, worldwide in the last maybe five, six years. It's it's gotten really big here lately. Um so the community is that bit bigger, but it also helps to connect people. I mean, you know, uh, like, and people get to know us and then they might see us at competitions and come over to us and say, oh, look, I, I really enjoy what the, the podcast you're doing. I find them really informative. Mm-hmm. I found, you know, this particular episode really helpful for me personally. And, you know, that in and of itself is enough for me to keep doing them, you know, because I know that I'm, I'm actually making a, a difference in people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, very um, much. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you travel a lot. What What's your perception of physical communities versus secondary communities like a, a podcast? I mean, plus, of course, you're an engineer and all that. I mean, as far as understanding technology, how important, you know, what kind of shift and how important is it, do you think, that we have basically podcast and YouTube and things like that? Yeah, I think it's a good, easy way for people to get information and to also realize, like you guys are saying, that there's other people who are maybe similar to them, maybe not the same, but 
I even think of like an extreme case of marketing and what people will sell and what people will buy, right? Because if you buy something that says that there is a confirmed interest in it, and I remember going to a marketing thing once and a guy was selling, I don't know how many millions of dollars he made per year doing a sock of the month club. I'm like, a sock? Who the heck is into socks so much that they would buy different socks just sock? each month? But hmm. I guess a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, huh? So if you expand that into even just you know, powerlifting or strongman or grip sport or whatever, that with the internet, you can now find a group of people who you thought you're the only person in your state that does this, and you find, oh, there's hundreds to thousands of people across the world that do it. So there is a bigger community there than what you probably uh, feel like. <laughs> and I think both of them are important. Uh, getting you know, information that you can you know, listen to while you're driving in your car or doing your dishes or things like that is good. Uh, my only fear is that people can rely on that a little bit too much and miss out on the actual physical culture experience of being with other people and lifting with other people and doing that that sort of thing. Because I think even if podcasts and the only social media is the only outlet you have for that, I think it's good. But I think having some type of personal contact or people that you know personally is kind of like the the next level. And I know like even going to Costa Rica and being down there for like two weeks, a lot of the people who come down there you know, haven't really spent time with a lot of other you know, fitness professionals or people with, you know, same interests for a long period of time. You know, we're doing meditation in the morning, we're learning about stuff, we're eating together, we're lifting together. And that's like a huge experience for a lot of people. And even myself every year as a reminder of, oh, yeah, this is kind of what it, it feels like and just to, to be around other people at the same time. Right. No, that makes sense. There's definitely pros and cons to the whole I mean, if you include podcasts as part of social media, but the whole social <laughs> yeah. media aspect of, of – it's like mortar for the community, but I'm not sure it's the bricks, you know. Uh, yeah. And to your point, I mean, there's a real financial cost to drive or fly somewhere and have a physical one-on-one oh, -on -one experience. I like how podcasts – they can kind of draw out kind of like to the conversation with you, Arthur, about if you're an oddball, if you're this egghead slash meathead – you probably are in a bit of a minority, and it's it's a way for you to find like-minded people and realize that you're there's nothing wrong with with your uncommon nature, you know, and and that sort of thing. So it could be reinforcing, I guess. Um, okay, but but the next question I have for you, Arthur, is what about what about the bad? Is there anything bad in fitness podcasting, or have you heard bad? like strength or power or bodybuilding podcasts or what's your thought about the, the, the dark side here? Yeah. So I'm probably not in the best position to answer this because I tend to sort of shield myself away from anything. I'm, I think might be, um, not good information just because I, I, I almost, I just don't want to put that stress upon myself of like knowing that that is out there. It's our, it's almost like a bury my head in the sand and just, just pretend it doesn't exist a lot of the time. <laughs> but the reality is it, that it very much does. So there's some, there's some like, like all walks of life, there's good and bad. So there's some fantastic podcasts to put out great information. That's, that's science backed and it's evidence based and it's, 
rationally thought out and the um the claims they're making are much more uh reasoned you know mm-hmm. and not sensationalist mm-hmm. and there's the complete opposite then as well so there's podcasts with bad ideas that are you know maybe pushing um you know just flat out incorrect information stuff that might potentially be actively harmful they're pushing shady products um and uh yeah it, it's it's a problem and you know like we're in our own sort of preaching to the choir here talking about this ourselves but it's for the person who doesn't have that critical thinking framework or doesn't have the necessary skill set to be able to say uh oh i i i'm able to detect that that's a nonsense claim or that's that's not correct um mm-hmm. they're the people i would sort of worry about more um you know and actually something i was just thinking about there um when you're talking about uh the in person experience from from your guys perspective do you find that the fact that there are so many podcasts now and that people have made so many appearances on different podcasts that that actually hurts things like seminar sales and stuff because people have heard the person so much already and they're like oh well I've already got all this free content from them offline what else would I learn paying 100 or 150 dollars to go and um hear them talk about the same thing that's an interesting question Arthur I uh, Joey Antonio Dr. Jose Antonio when we started Iron Radio he made a comment about you know well if you're going to do something like that it's got to be free I mean people won't pay for you know they're spoiled or entitled or whatever um and they won't pay and that has crossed my mind before and I'm sure it has Mike too. I Mike does a lot of um traveling All to right. seminars and stuff. I mean and we do we give away a lot of stuff for free. What we don't do is give individual assessments and training programs and advice and we get asked that regularly. So that's that's where we draw the line I think. But yeah, what do you think Mike? Uh I mean, I've had to go through that again and just determine what boundaries I'm going to do because I put up a thing on Facebook a while ago that I basically just canned like 1,400 emails I've been trying to get to and back and forth for several months. And I'm just like, nope, uh, I'm not getting back to them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I said, okay, here's the deal. Here's my office hours, you know, so I have two hours a week I donate. People can literally call and I'll talk to them and answer any questions they want. But... They have to call. They have to call during a specific time. They can't leave a voicemail, and I'm not going to get back to them per se. They can send an email, and I'll get back to their email during those times only. And again, these are all for non-paying you know, paying clients, things of that nature. Okay. If they want free info, right, they can listen to this podcast. They can listen to a bunch of other podcasts I've done. I put out a newsletter almost every day, so five to six days a week. That's free. I've got tons of articles, you know, guest articles, other places. They can get that for free. So, but after that, you know, if you want to pick my brain for an hour, then it's going to cost you money. Yeah. You know, so just trying to be very clear of what what is kind of those those lines, and it it's crazy because you'll still get some people who still complain. Well, I used to do this or that. It's like, well, no other industry puts out in general as an industry, this amount of free information. Yeah, I would never think of calling my attorney and be like, hey, I got a couple of questions. It's just a half hour. 
Like, All right, make an appointment, and they're of course going to charge me. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Phil says that often. In fact, I spoke to an attorney, and I quite like her. Uh, she's helping with the patent stuff that we're doing with the yeah. coffee invention, and um, she's like, "Yeah, any questions? Let me know." And then later, I see uh, in other communications that you know she's getting like up to fifteen hundred dollars per question from the university. You know, and I'm like. Whoa. Whoa. Now, don't get me wrong. You're talking about somebody who's a, a lawyer and an engineer. I mean, she's yeah. if somebody deserves it, it's her. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah and, and and it's not unreasonable to charge, like you say, you know, a professional person. But, yeah, Phil will always say that, too. Like, put me on a program. Tell me what to eat. Yeah. Wow. I guess the answer to that is just no, bud. <laughs> you know, it's got to be no. Otherwise, we, we devaluate ourselves, you know. Yeah, and we all know that those are not – easy questions to answer you know someone sends an email and they're like well uh, how many mackerels should i eat it's like i don't know i mean the amount of time for me to sit down if you were a private client and figure that out is not an easy answer much less no background no other info to go on and then even when i followed up with some people with free advice the odds of them actually doing it so so am i actually making a difference in people's lives yeah yeah, most people didn't follow up with it. And I don't think it's a a conscious thing per se. It's a unconscious value associated with the information. You know, so yeah. it yeah. And in even that even in like newsletters I tend to only do more soft teaching and not a lot of hard teaching. So it's like uh hey, yeah, intervals are great for this or that. Here's the mechanism, here's the actual study, but I'm not going to write out an exact program of how they would implement it because it's just too many variables, and then all you get is an inbox full of like 1,800 questions of, well, I can't do my sprints on Tuesday morning, so what should I do instead? And it's <laughs> yeah. just never-ending. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's sort of to Arthur's point about, you know, can people smell a bozo? Can they ask the right questions? I mean, all we're yeah. doing really is saying, here's some resources or here's some conversation and facts and whatnot, and, and you're going to have to put together – something yourself hopefully in a more educated way maybe it's finding the right book or you know reading some intro level academic textbook or whatever it is so you can start to ask the right questions you can smell the bozos you can set up your own programs or maybe reach out to a coach i mean because we all know that even if you know your stuff working with a coach can still be valuable like it might shock people that any one of us might still work with a a training or diet coach or something like that but yeah, I mean, sometimes you just need that the behavioral, uh, like um, accountability or reminder or sounding board. You know, there's still there's still uh, benefits to it. But um, we're almost out of time, and I just wanted to follow up on the ugly. Uh, as far as we talked about good, bad, and ugly, but uh, this is a hard question. But Arthur, you're a straight shooter. Uh, what kind of qualifications would you expect if someone's going to assume the mantle of? having a podcast to inform a community or help glue it together. What do you expect out of that person? Um, are we talking about a fitness or nutrition related podcast? Specifically? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, particularly, I mean, most of our people are barbell and strength related, but yeah, just fitness, nutrition, I think period. I mean, we both know there's a lot of in a web 2.0 environment. There's no editors as gatekeepers, Everybody seems to put stuff online, but what would your be, you know, your advice, I guess, for our listeners as to what to uh, expect? Yeah, um, if I was 
so if this question was directed towards, uh, or sorry, if this answer was directed towards people who were maybe considering setting up their own fitness or nutrition related podcast, I would say at a very minimum that you need to have some sort of formal education, preferably a degree. And the reason being is that until you've been around long enough, uh, you don't realize how much you don't know. Mm -hmm. You're actually unaware of how much you don't know, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's thankfully something I'm, I'm relieved that I didn't get into this when I was earlier, when I was younger, you know, more naive and probably thought I was, you know, the biz like, um, so, but I, I don't think that like, say if you have two podcast hosts, I don't think they both have to have a degree because I think it's useful to have the, the head, the, head, the very educated person. And then maybe someone who's almost like a link to the more general population or the non-academic, um, because then they, then that combination can sort of improve the communication to the listenership, if that kind of makes sense. Because if sometimes very good academics can be brutal communicators, um, and sometimes having someone along with them to just say, oh, um, I don't really understand that fully. Could you maybe explain that um, a different way? Or they might ask a question that in and of itself is insightful, and then you think, oh, actually, you don't, you don't know about this thing that I take, that this piece of knowledge that I take for granted. Mm -hmm. So let me break that down for you, um, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. In, in fact, it almost, an analogy might be, uh, like in comedy, it helps to have a straight man to make the funny guy sound really funny. You know, mm. and in this case, it's, it's helpful to have that sort of straight man, that someone who, that every man who's like, can you tell me what that even means, bro? <laughs> you know, <laughs> in a kind of a, just a conversational environment. Uh, what do you think, Mike? I know that's a hard question, but qualifications for someone who's going to do something like a nutrition or, or strength podcast. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I know it's I hard. Mean, you could argue either way. And yeah. I always just like that people are just very clear of what their background is. I mean, I don't have any problem if someone says, hey, I've been a strength coach for 15 years. I may not have a lot of formal education, but in my experience, here's what I've seen. Or same thing with, you know, nutrition or whatever. Um, or if you're more on the academic side, you know, hey, this is what the research says on this. What I don't like is people who have a lot of experience and then kind of try to do research, but kind of mess it up and even vice versa you know there's some stuff i'm like hey, ask me about olympic weightlifting i have no freaking idea yeah i mean i know basics but i don't yeah. coach olympic weightlifting i don't even really coach a lot of people with warm stuff per se in person uh, i do some but you know you definitely don't want me as your day-to-day -day coach in the gym it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's gonna be way too technical probably pretty boring and not really super motivating yeah. Yeah, it's a good question to yeah. to ask if is the person willing to say I don't know I don't know about that one or you know yeah. I would always say even in the classroom when I taught strength and conditioning at the university I'd say listen I'm I'll talk about uh, histology or muscle architecture or, or neuromuscular adaptations and but I'm not going to be the person you're going to be asking about 
your hip hinge and <laughs> you know and yeah. and in what yeah. order or sequence you should be trying to fire things in these cues i'm not a coach right i'm a nutritionist guys <laughs> i don't know what or, or an exercise physiologist and yeah you have to be if someone's willing to say i don't know about that that's actually gives credibility in my mind because i think that a, a person who's lower on the spectrum maybe uh you know of either experiential or academic education, they're going to be much less likely to say, wow, I don't know that. Let me look that up for you, you yeah. know, uh, kind of I, thing. I might add one little bit to what I was saying. So I think the answer I gave was maybe more for the, like, say, someone who wanted to do, like, a nutrition podcast or a sports ecology podcast, something where, like, you can actually go to school for that. Yeah. I think if it was, like, specifically a powerlifting or specifically a bodybuilding podcast, Obviously, you wouldn't need that level of um, formal education, but you would need to, I would say, have a certain amount of experience built up. I don't know if that's like five years, 10 years, but you need to have a certain amount of skin in the game. And uh, like, because otherwise, you don't know what you might say. Um, and I, I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant sometimes with like the guy who's just purely experienced because I'm like, did you get to where you are because of what you do or in spite of what you yeah. do? Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, that would be kind of my thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, a little bit of both. You know, it's sometimes it's fun to talk about people. You know, what's your competition cred or so, – so, like, to, um, to both your guys' points, when listeners get the spiel, they can get it from different angles and – you know, the, the person's not trying to be all things to all people. We've had that discussion on the show before. You know, someone who's, oh, they, they seem to be an expert in nutrition and in, you know, um, powerlifting coaching. And, oh, look, they're a massotherapist and a kinesiologist. And they're 19 and, years old. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Like, Arthur said, no skin in the game. Like, you're 19. You've got maybe, what, you, you've only been, you're barely an adult. <laughs> right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah, not enough skin in the game. But yeah. and with the skin in the game, I look at does do people pay them for the service that they're doing? If they don't, I get kind of nervous. If if you're doing hands-on work or whatever it is, in addition to nutrition or whatever else, do people pay you for that skill? If they don't, I get kind of nervous. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's that. You know. Um, web 2.0 environment where people are so eager they're doing it uh for personal fame and not for maybe a higher purpose like you know what we're trying to do is just have a bigger impact give something back and frankly not have to have an enormous amount of preparation before we do it you know so we can keep doing it regularly like we do and um you know that kind of stuff don't tell them all of our secrets we've prepped for hours upon hours Right, we, right. On on a Friday night, instead of going out, we all sit around together and practice a full show. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about um, partly like how Arthur, how you do it, like where you just kind of shoot the shit with a buddy, uh, and we, you know we do a bit of that too. People will give us feedback regularly. I just heard again two days ago. Can you just do more of the shop talk episodes? There's really something to yeah. be said. And I mean, I have to actually watch it. I don't launch into a lecture. I know I do that, right? And I'm I'm partly sorry for that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but sometimes the shop talk is is the the most fun, and that's all somebody wants. They want light conversation on their on their commute to work, you know, kind of thing. It could be a good thing. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, any final thoughts, Arthur? Maybe um, whether about podcasting or more specifics about how they find yours. Uh, I really like the cross-pollinating with you know quality podcasts here. Absolutely. Um, the the only thing I might add because uh, it was something I want I looked up uh, before coming on air because I wasn't entirely sure what direction we were going with this, but just like the 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 explosion of podcasting in general in the last couple of years has just been astounding so i actually got some figures online and uh um as of 2019 there are 2 million podcasts indexed by google wow which oh. is unbelievable yeah um and in 2018 there was a podcast trends report so they did a massive survey of like over a thousand people um 76.8 percent of responders listen to podcasts for greater than seven hours a week um 61.2 percent spend more time listening to podcasts than watching tv hmm. and 48.8 percent of responders um of this particular survey purchased an item having heard it advertised on a podcast so i think that wow. those are some interesting statistics yeah oh yeah yeah, the data I have are definitely older than that, but I've heard some things like podcast listeners are more loyal and trusting than someone who just watches YouTube because, you know, you kind of flitter around on YouTube. You know, it, it, maybe there's a little bit less community uh, it, for a lot of online stuff compared to podcasts, but uh, I didn't realize it was it had exploded to such an extent. My goodness. Yeah. Um. Can, can I also say as well, just before uh, you close out, Lonnie, um, how, how honored I am to be on this show because this is actually the first podcast I ever listened to. I, I didn't even really know what a podcast was until I found you guys, and um, I'm just incredibly uh, grateful to you guys for, for inviting me on. It's almost like a like a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> thanks for that. We're just uh, we're just a bunch of goofballs, just like you and your buddies, you know. And oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I, we need to cross pollinate. I'm glad that you're coming on because you're you're proof positive that you know there is that sort of egghead meathead listenership. Uh, I think if anybody was just an academic or just a meathead, they'd get bored with us pretty fast. But people like you actually exist. So <laughs> I'm pointing to you as proof. <laughs> so an end of one example right yeah yeah um oh, so just one more time the name of your podcast and can they get it through itunes or oh no problem yes yeah, so the name of my podcast uh, so we were initially called the no lift powerlifting podcast but we, we're a lot more um uh broad in the topics that we cover now so it's actually just called the no lift podcast and mm. you can find us on itunes uh soundcloud and spotify okay Good stuff. Yeah. Well, nice. good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Everybody, Phil, um, he's actually helping his team warm up and everything. So that's why he sort of dropped out like he, he sometimes does. We make this stuff happen. Uh, as you know, Mike's always so good about that, too. So and, and, you know, and Arthur with the time differences and everything else. So I appreciate it, you guys. And um, we'll see everyone next week. Awesome. See you guys. Thanks again. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. 
So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.